This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to Erased and a huge welcome back to my co-host Lisa Johnson. I was MIA last time. MIA. Colette carried the weight. She had a solo episode. And How was that? You were missed, sis. She missed my niceness. I, I, sh- <laughs> I said it on the episode. Oh, you did? Your niceness will be missed. Welcome back, sis. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The audience thanks you. <laughs> so, you know, since I was last here, I'm I'm happy to share that I've gotten a lot of calls about the episode we did with the parents, yes. with Jasmine White and um, my Chappelle. And it's kind of scary for parents to come on our show because they don't know how their schools are going to receive their honesty. Absolutely. And they've both gotten really good feedback from their schools and from their administrators. So that's that's very good. That's awesome. very positive, yes. But since then, I've, I've had a lot of calls from parents as well about these news stories. They're just getting crazier and crazier. In some states, they have introduced legislation fighting teaching critical race theory in public schools. I think at the basis of all of these arguments, legislative attempts, et cetera, is an ignorance about what critical race theory actually is. I mean, there's just this growing energy of all these news stories hitting us over the head, right and left, about just parents just being unhappy mostly white parents being unhappy with the schools paying attention to race and diversity and equity and inclusion. And I know I have been one of those parents waiting for someone to speak up. And so that kind of, that leads us to today's episode. So for months, the news media has shared the reactions of displeased white parents who aren't happy with their children's private school's current focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and race. Media stories have unveiled clandestine parent meetings. We've talked about that. Fears around white students being indoctrinated and being made to feel bad for being white. Hilarious, by the way. (laughs) Well, you know, little Joey doesn't want to feel bad about being white. I'm just saying, what have (laughs) our kids been doing all this time? We won't get into that. Please continue. Complaints around getting rid of the classics, quote unquote, in literature, and so much more. Oh, those damn classics, man. classics. When they were designated classics, let's talk about who was designating them classics and what the criteria was. Again, another show that I won't stop you. Please continue. And for months, many of us in the private school community have had to read these articles, fuming. It's infuriating to see the voice of so few get lifted up to the point of international news. But was it the voice of a few? Were these just the parents willing to be vocal? And why didn't anyone offer any balance to these concerns? Well, joining us today is Brian Platzer, who, along with Abby Freireich, writes the weekly education column for The Atlantic. And they recently published a response to a concerned white parent who had a question about her child's education in the homeroom column entitled, I'm concerned about wokeness at my child's school. Most of the teachers and parents I talk with just want school to be school. Pause. 
Dramatic pause. <laughs> so Brian is here with us today to talk to us about their response as a team and much, much more. In addition to his column in The Atlantic, Brian has appeared as an education expert in The New York Times on Good Morning America, CBS, CNN, NPR, and he and Abby are the co-authors of Taking the Stress Out of Homework, which is an Avery Penguin Random House publication. And the co-founders and directors of Teachers Who Tutor, New York City's only tutoring organization that pairs students with classroom teachers. Brian's also an eighth grade English teacher, which makes him a superhero, <laughs> at an independent school in downtown Manhattan and the author of the novels bed is Burning and The Body Politic, both from Atria Simon and Schuster. Welcome, Brian. It is such a pleasure and honor to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. I've been so looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. So we always kick things off by asking our guests, when was the last time or has there been a recent time where you felt erased, invisible, diminished for whatever reason? For a long time, I, I think the answer to that might have been no, not really. I, I went through a lot of years feeling pretty seen by, by the world. Then about decade ago, I became dizzy. And I, I was dizzy on and off for five, six years with an undiagnosable neurological condition. I was bedridden for two years. I couldn't work, um, couldn't, couldn't be alone with my kids, couldn't, couldn't participate in, in real life. It was just after my second son was born. And with a whole lot of psychopharmaceuticals and some other behavioral modifications, the diagnosis is still mysterious, but the symptoms can be mitigated to the point where I've been able to gain, you know, five or six hours of clarity every day, for which I am very, very grateful. But that ends at around 3, 3.30, uh, right, right when we started to, uh, to, to record <laughs> today, actually. But it, it means that almost every afternoon, I'm, I'm really struggling to, uh, to get through the, the rest of the day from the afternoon through evening. And how I present physically is, is not at all how I, how I feel, you know, mentally or how I, how control I am of, of my body and my thoughts and, and my mind, et cetera. So it's a question that I, I, I think I would have maybe not even fully understood being a, a you know, a, a straight white, middle-aged white man in Brooklyn a decade ago. But, but now it's, it's something that I, I really do believe I, I feel every day that people aren't aren't seeing me for the, the, the life I'm living or, or for my, my inner experience. Wow. Well, a special thank you for being here today. I mean, we, no, it's, we, it's, 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 it's my pleasure. I, it, it sounded more pity demanding. No, than I, than I not at all. Like, no, not pity. I, but my, what, my what ran good. through my able... head was anybody that doesn't disagree with what he's saying, it's not because he's dizzy right now. <laughs> <laughs> so save that That's excuse. That's true. I stand by all my dizzy thoughts there. You can, you can hold me to them. <laughs> so when I first came across, someone emailed me your piece. I think I read it three times, just back to back, just to make sure I was understanding <laughs> what I was reading. And my mouth was open the entire time. How many letters like this one have you received before responding? And, and how long in the making was your response? So... I've probably had 50 conversations or so 
in addition to the dozen or so letters that, that we've received along these lines. Most of the conversations aren't as outwardly ag aggressive as this letter writer is. A lot of a lot of the vocabulary is shared, but you know the, the direct comparison between teaching, you know, real history and, and Maoism isn't typically made in, in conversation. But a lot of people are saying, you know, why do why do the schools need to deal with all these anti-racist things? Can't they just teach math? You know, why do my kids need to learn about slavery in every class? Why do my kids need to be constantly hearing about black people, you know, that's not what science is about, that's not what math is about, you know, can't literature just be literature? And in the beginning, I was I was shocked by just the misunderstanding. I, I, I kept on saying, no, you don't, what you think is happening isn't, isn't really happening, and I tried to explain, but the explanations never went anywhere. Abby and I both felt it necessary to put into writing a response that went point by point through this false dichotomy between academic excellence and what the letter writer calls social justice. Brian, before we dive deeper into that, I want to clarify a couple of things. You Please. said that you've had 50, at least 50, 5 of these conversations, correct? 5-0, correct. 5-0, okay. A lot of that is because I am speaking not only to members of the community where I teach and where my children go, but through the tutoring company, I'm speaking to all sorts of parents who are frustrated and anxious about academic and social issues. But whereas before a year ago, those conversations never delved into these issues. You know, it used to be, my kid's not eating and math is hard and how am I supposed to get them to do their homework? Now it's my kid's not eating and math is hard and they're doing all this critical race stuff and how am I supposed to get my kids to do their math homework? But you know, you start to realize that whether it is the media or the loudest voices, you know, and we can talk about the origins of where a lot of these people are getting their information, but it's clear that this is, at least in the world of New York City independent schools, one of the most, if not the most frequent topic of conversation. And so, can you really succinctly tell us what this topic of conversation is? You touched upon the false dichotomy, but for our listeners who are still a little confused about what we're addressing, yeah. what is this conversation that you keep having to have? And we'll put in the show notes a link to the, to the article, but give them an idea of the gist of... The gist of the conversation, at its most basic form, it's why do we need to talk so much about race all of a sudden? I want my kid to be educated. I don't need them, you know, constantly hearing about or talking about or engaging in what I think to a lot of parents who can afford these tuitions are tangential conversations to what they see as the basic building blocks of academics. I also love that a lot of these people are expressing that concern in anonymity. And I'm being yeah, sarcastic. I, like <laughs> Stop hiding behind articles and etc. So I think a lot of the excuses behind the anonymity, and I've heard this before, where we get a lot of anonymous letters for other reasons. You know, like my daughter's bullied online and I don't want to use her real name, so I'll call her Sarah, you know. But a lot of the letters that we received about this topic had a little addendum to the anonymous. It's like I don't want to be anonymous, and I wish I could give you my name, but if I do, I will be an outcast in my parent group or from my school, Welcome. so I am anonymous. 
you know, there's that sort of wind up to anonymity. Welcome to the experience of people of color in independent schools. Welcome. (laughs) So the author of the letter mentions that the teachers and parents she's spoken with just want, quote unquote, school to be school, as if everything that's been introduced into curriculums, the enlightened literature and lessons are not part of learning. Are teachers getting any or or any adequate guidance in embracing all of this? It's a great question. And to me, the guidance is getting better in terms of the theory of the case. You know, I I feel like a decade ago, 15 years ago, when I started teaching independent schools, people weren't knowledgeable about, when I say people, I mean teachers that I taught alongside were less knowledgeable about what it meant to be Black in the United States post-slavery. I think people had a good understanding of slavery and how terrible that was, and a good understanding on how we shouldn't now use the N-word. But there was a big gap, historically, between those two periods of time. I think because of you know, anti-racist work, professional development, etc., Teachers have a much better sense now of, you know, the issues that I could tick through, such as redlining and, you know, GI Bill problems and that. I think teachers are given less professional development when it comes to the actual experience of teaching in a classroom with just zero or one or two or three Black or Hispanic students. You know, that's when a lot of the the theory becomes a lot less useful and teachers fall into not old habits necessarily, but I think just a lack of experience in in knowing how different students can and, and should be included in the classroom experience without making people feel shame or guilt or, or bad about themselves. Or othered. A lot lot of teachers I talk to, like you said, they are really grateful for and engaging in the professional development and are desperate for more professional development around how to have difficult conversations or to navigate difficult moments when discomfort arises. And I think from the the teacher's perspectives, I'm, I'm really empathetic to that because for a while... At, at the height of uh, conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of white friends of mine were confused by what the correct response was. You know, in conversation with Black friends or on social media or with students, etc. I mean, I I feel strongly that there there is no, you know, blanket correct response and it has to do with Amen, your because in, individual relationship with the people. Yeah. Assuming there is one assumes that we are all of the same experience and emotions and need the same answer. But I love even naming that. So then yes. it would how would that play out for you? It, exactly. So so I feel like there was so much fear in saying the wrong thing. Mm. And by implication, therefore, there was a right thing to say, mm. which, as you suggest, Colette, implies a sort of monolith that, that doesn't exist and, of course, gets the, the conversation backwards in, in some way. But in the classroom and especially within professional development, that becomes a profoundly difficult skill to develop, you know, how to treat students who maybe 
are viewed in a similar way historically, but are individuals and experience that view in different ways, like to train for that is, I, I think, difficult. And I, I empathize with teachers and with administrators who are trying to put teachers in, in better situations. But the nature of these schools is that they cost fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year. They are elite institutions. They call themselves elite institutions. In many ways, they are um, better than some institutions at doing some things and far worse at, at others. But having a price tag like that while calling themselves anti-racist creates a cognitive dissonance that I don't think any of us have fully figured out how to cope with. Right. So take all of that that you just said and factor in families like ours who have felt like this change is long overdue and you have the whole pacing issue, right? Black and some white parents think it's long overdue. Many do not. What's realistic? How, how should this be paced, this type of change? So my, my personal opinion is that it should be sped up and explained. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the problem with the whole concept of pacing is it suggests that there's a moral equivalency between those who want conversations about race to be very slowly dripped, dripped, dripped into a conversation versus those who feel like they've been necessary for decades, if not, you know, centuries. And I think slowing that conversation down creates that that moral equivalency, which, which doesn't exist or shouldn't. But I do feel that having the conversations be as surprising to some parents as they are shows a lack of forgive the vulgarity, but, but marketing and publicity on the, on the side of these schools, that schools should be doing a, a better job of preparing their parent bodies for these conversations so it doesn't feel as fast as it does to some parents and from you know the many parents I've heard from. So why do you think there's been such a negative response and so much pushback from parents? You know, was the polarization predictable from your point of view? Absolutely is predictable. And I think it has something to do with the price tags and it has something to do with people feeling as though they are purchasing a product. And typically when people who can afford $60,000 a year tuitions purchase a product, they can decide exactly what product they're purchasing. And part of the issue comes from the fact that in their mind, if they were to lay out the curriculum, it probably wouldn't correspond exactly with what their kids are learning right now. And that is frustrating for people who are spending a whole lot of money to give their kids an experience that they feel should be tailored to their children. I don't necessarily disagree with that in theory. I disagree with their vision of what's better for their children. I I, I think that even if we're just speaking selfishly about the children of the wealthy, it is better for them to have an honest accounting of history and literature and what it means to be an American rather than to shield them from that. But I, I feel much of the frustration is many parents feel like they are the victim of a bait and switch. Mm-hmm. You know, they thought that they were sending their kids to an elite private school, but what they're getting instead is a bunch of race theory. And they didn't realize that that's what they were signing up for. 
And so, that is actually somewhat understandable, and I find that to be the fault of the institutions, because if they were much clearer at the outset as to, and they're moving towards it now, but much clearer at the outset as to their commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, that's the marketing that he was, I think, that you were mentioning before. But I also wonder what the parent education piece has to be, right? Because if this is the lived experience of the parents and they believe the, the history that they were taught, how are we going to help move them to believe? But that's what I'm saying. If, and I'm not excusing it. Please don't believe. But if I signed up for an institution that said they taught classics because they believed in it for X, Y, and Z reasons, and then a whole movement occurs, and now... I would be upset. Yes, there's, yes. there's parent education, et cetera, to do to help people understand why the changes are being made, and space needs to be left for parents to have that moment to breathe and engage potentially in that education because I can empathize yeah. with a bait and switch on that. And I think it's also a bit of a fine print issue, you know, like if the headline is that these schools are elite institutions, and then if you get to, you know, a linked page behind another page on the website with their full DEI information, I imagine most of it is there, right? There are mission statements and there are curricular guides, etc. But when you are choosing among these schools, the top lines are going to be do these kids seem like they're well-raised and are the facilities nice, you know? And it's if there is a conversation about DEI, it's going to be far more on the inclusion part than the, you know, equity part. There's a there's an easier conversation to be had, you know, saying we, we welcome all types of people and family and, and kids. And I don't think it's false advertising necessarily, but I do think it's trying to see who your parent base is and meet them where they are. Because I, I'm fascinated by the, by the concept of parental education. I don't know if it's possible. Yeah. I, I think that I see these schools try. And if you have optional DEI meetings, the same parents always attend it. Yeah. And if you have mandated DEI meetings, parents go crazy because they say, I, I don't want to be stuck in a meeting for an hour and lectured about my my privilege. So I, I I feel as though the issue is a parent education issue. And I don't have the solution to that other than to write an article along these lines. And, and to be completely honest, I, Abby and I went for some low hanging fruit here, you know, with this answer, like, it's obvious to us that having a more diverse curriculum, having a curriculum from a variety of perspectives, like that's not teaching racial history. That's just teaching like a more accurate history. Like for me, that's an easy conversation to have. And I don't, I don't know if there is fully a, uh, an in good faith counter argument to that. Similarly, like saying that you have to teach the Aeneid because your grandfather read the Aeneid, like why, like that makes no sense. Like the Aeneid is boring and there are books that apply to kids' lives now in a way that the Aeneid never did. And, and like who's really reading both books and saying, no, I'm standing up for the Aeneid. Like I, the reason why Abby and I wrote this article in the way we did is because we felt the conversation was so skewed that we could write a relatively straightforward article that was more or less indisputable. And, and, the, and the arguments that we get 
with this article tend not to be with the points we're making in the article, but tend to be you're not listening to the letter writer, right? You're not answering the actual questions. You're not confronting the actual issues. And I feel like that is obfuscatory from the sake of people defending the letter writer. I, I think we are answering the letter writer who says, why are we teaching all this new woke literature at the expanse of the classics we grew up on? And, I'm, and we explain why, essentially. But behind that, there's an anger that we didn't address. Uh, because I think it is far more difficult to address, and it's the conversation that we three are are attempting to have now. And fueling that anger is lack of logic in terms of people can't generally, in conversations I've had, argue with supporting classics beyond, well, that's the way it's always been done. And as you were saying before, as schools might try and focus on inclusion, over diversity and equity, I argue that there's no such thing as inclusion without examining equity because no one's going to feel included in a community if they're not having an equitable experience. Absolutely. It's a necessary aspect of the other. To not have diversity means you can't have equity, and without diversity and equity, inclusion is a, is a meaningless word. And without diversity, we are not creating these institutions of learning to be the optimal institutions that they were created to be, period. They can't. That, to me, is a very generous defense of these institutions, that you take it as a relatively simple truth that these institutions have a goal of providing the best truthful education I didn't say truthful. To... <laughs> I said okay. their aim is to okay. be the best. We have and... to redefine what elite institution means across the board. Like I, said, I wasn't saying that, that they're committing to being truthful, but that they are committing to being the best. And like all scientific data points to the best, the most optimal learning is done in diverse environments. There's nothing out there that refutes that. But we've known that. Correct. And so to continue to argue against, it goes back to your point, Brian, that there's a lack of logic and, and a whole lot of reaction to, to certain things that are happening right now, as opposed to really being thoughtful and open to hearing what's going on. Are you comfortable with the way you just articulated the purpose of diversity as a necessary step towards excellence in a way that I feel leads a lot of schools towards a type of tokenism, saying like, for the benefit of our community, we are including students of color because all the research suggests we should. Does that put those students in a problematic position by definition? Absolutely. Students of color. And, and, and right. I'm, I'm saying it's intrinsic, not that that's what right. should be articulated. It's just what's intrinsic in, in the learning and communities. The solution is not to not have it. So I get uncomfortable when I try to have that side of the conversation because I, I'm, I'm, I was speaking in the second person. I could have as easily been in the first. When I find myself saying, you don't get it. It's better for you to have black people in the school. It's better for 
everyone, including those black kids, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Not it's not. I'm not putting my children in private school to benefit other people's learning. I'm putting them in private school because it benefits their learning as members of a collective community who everybody's learning. Do you feel I as though that's always be. been the case? Absolutely that, not. That 20, 20, 30 years ago, it benefited the black students to be brought into these primarily white institutions? I'm still not sold that it is <laughs> beneficial. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that it's more beneficial... In my humble opinion, it is more beneficial than what my kids could get coming out of our local public schools. And here we are. And that's what we've talked about throughout our podcast is like there, therein lies the conundrum. Yeah. And that's, that's where I am as well. I mean, it's for, for me, it is pure hypocrisy. What I do, right? Like my, my politics and my beliefs are that I should send my five and seven year old to the local public school and get involved in the PTA and Mm -hmm. donate time and money and make sure that my kids are mixing in with um, kids who live in our neighborhood and trying to, you know, encourage the teachers, give them whatever supplies and support they need. But that to me feels like a worse option for my kids than to send them to the elite private school where I teach and I used to try to find a way to excuse that or rationalize that or, or, or have any explanation beyond like, I want the best for my kids, my own politics and vision of the world be damned. And I'm not comfortable with that decision, but I, I would make it again, given we have these schools that probably shouldn't exist and I have access to them. I, I want my kids at, at attending one and it's, yep. I'm with you. I wish private yeah. schools didn't exist. I think I think most of us do. I, yeah, I, wish, <laughs> I was just going to say I wish for many, many reasons right. that I could send my kids to local public schools. But the issue that I have is the public school system, as long as it is tied to property taxes in the areas in which the schools exist, it is set up to fail kids of color based on a whole bunch of other historical and systemic racial issues We've been there. We've talked about it. Yes. And while private schools, some of them were built to exclude, right? Once they are not excluding on that level, there is a chance at succeeding as children of color in these schools. At what cost? That's what we've been discussing. All the time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Absolutely. And what interests me, which is an aspect of of this conversation, but, but not exactly what we're talking about as well is sort of the latent anger that's ready to believe the the worst of racial and inclusive education you know like where where i teach teachers are encouraged not to say mom and dad when when talking to Mm -hmm. their when talking to their students right because like i have one student whose father passed away and another student with two moms and like why would I come and say, like, go home and tell your mom and dad about this when I know that that's going to exclude some kids in my class? It seems like common courtesy and, and kindness. But people are so excited to believe that we are forbidden from referring to moms and dads or that kids aren't allowed to say my mom and dad, that people are, are so credulous about what they think DEI work means that 
to me, it comes back to that, that question of parental education, how it's possible, in what forms it can be possible, because there are just so many people who, who took it as gospel, who said, like, why aren't you allowed to, to call your students mom, mom? Why do you have to say caretakers? You know, and I'm like, no, nah, like, that's not what's going on here. We're just trying to be sensitive. Like, we're just right. trying to be nice, you know, and like, why would you expect that the school you send your kid to and the teachers whom you hang out with, like, would be having secret motives. Like we're just and I trying to be a, nice here. I take that a step further with critical race theory in schools. We're not trying to be nice. We're trying to tell the truth. We are trying to actually share history as it has happened. And that's the false dichotomy there is that there are a lot of folks who think that in giving more exposure to diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically race in education, that that's taking something away and making white people the bad guys and that you should have self-hatred as white people for what's happened historically. And, and that's fast. The inability, for, forgive me for interrupting, but th- this, is, this is the one time I interrupt and I, I promise I won't <laughs> do it again, but like the, the inability to separate current white seven-year-olds from slave owners that they're taught about shocks me every time. Like, no one is suggesting that this seven-year-old is responsible for slavery. Nobody right. is, is saying that. What we are saying is that the seven-year-old, or maybe if that's too young, the 12-year-old, should be taught the, the truth about what people who, yes, looked like him did, but, but j- just like we're learning about World War II and people did horrible things. Like, it's that defensive reflex startles me every single time. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. And as we have talked about co-curricular pieces that we as people of color get into with our kids, when I'm talking to my kids about things like slavery, et cetera, it is never taught from the lens and white people are evil. And you see that man over there, he is the descendant of a slave owner. You shouldn't <laughs> like him. But what I will tell you is this week when I was driving down the street and a white man was not happy that I didn't let him almost hit me to enter my lane. And when he spat on my car and I didn't respond and his response was, hey, nigger, that I then had to teach my children again. Were they in the car with that, you? No, but they got in and saw the spit and Ugh. I had to go to the Ugh. car wash. But that conversation then had to be again, that just because someone is that way does not mean that all of those people are that way and we have to rise above. And what I'm here to say is that I am exhausted from rising above and teaching my children to rise above when they have to go to school and face the, but when we're supposed to learn about me, people are having a fit. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And the other aspect of what you're saying is that schools should play a role in contextualizing the reasons why there is so much anger in white Americans towards black Americans and saying you're learning that instead of something else. I don't know. That sounds reasonable to me. Like you look at middle school and high school curriculum, it's all arbitrary anyway. Like if you teach biology, but don't include one aspect of cellular respiration, it's just like another thing in biology or in history. If you teach through World War II, but you don't get to the Vietnam War in this semester, like it's not like replacing one element with another is is worse in some objective way like it's just people making it up like what we should be teaching kids at this age anyway like if you don't learn all the french this year because in french class you're learning about french colonial history like that's not 
worse. That's just another thing you're teaching kids. And if that helps them understand the world they're living in, you know, that is a- You're preparing them. <laughs> and that's right. exactly- like I, That's what, yeah. like, what is so great about the old curriculum? That, that's what no one's ever and explained. And that is me. exactly what we are asking for, is, is the, the experts, the teachers, the curriculum leaders, admin, whomever, take a look at the current curriculum and talk about what kids need today, including academics and life skills, and reevaluate some the world things. today. Not that we <laughs> need to impose what it looks like, what the topics are, what the actual materials are, but just can we please reflect, refresh, renew, and move on? But a massive roadblock here is between the leaders and the teachers, for the most part, in the schools and the clientele. And bridging that gap between, on one hand, teachers and administrators who are for, for sure not perfect, and there are examples of horror cases everywhere, but are, I think, in a much better mindset and a much better place than where we were 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. That gap between where educators are, at least within the New York City independent school world that I see, and where the parents are still is uh, broad, and I don't know how to bridge it. I was just about to ask you, <laughs> how do we bridge the gap? More specifically, how do we take bolder steps in schools? You, you mentioned affinity spaces. You said they're designed to help recalibrate the independent school experience, so has to be more inclusive and therefore enrich and broader and and help the students' perspective. What can we be doing that's bolder? And, and who do you think is doing doing it well right now? He smiles. <laughs> I feel as though my school where I teach, Grace Church School, got a little bit over its skis a, a decade ago in declaring itself anti-racist before it had implemented many of the policies that would justify that type of label. I feel like lately we have been doing a much better job of providing affinity spaces, opportunities to take a look at what had been curricular assumptions, at providing opportunities for you know, not just black and students of color uh, affinity spaces, but white ally spaces as well. I, I feel like the big difficulty is getting buy-in from parents who aren't already on the same page. And I haven't read much compelling literature on how to do that. I Amen. don't think the white fragility model is a particularly compelling one. Say I, it again, please. Say that what, again. The white yeah, fragility I, I, model is not particularly I don't feel compelling. The, the white fragility model, yeah. Why is that? Because it limits conversation to a comfort zone where some of the more difficult and therefore necessary conversations are often replaced by apologies or listening tours or a passivity Mm -hmm. that I don't feel is helpful, especially for educators and community leaders whose job it is to not be passive, but to teach and and explain and and talk. That that said, it's, it's really easy for me to criticize it without having a theory of, of what to replace it with. Um, I, I don't 
I don't think the model should be white people should be yelling and screaming at everybody about how things should be done, nor, nor do I think anybody should be yelling and screaming about how things right. should be done. I, I think part of the appeal of the white fragility vocabulary is it is it's far easier to implement, right? If you if you have a conversation under the implicit rules of white fragility, it's a conversation where you can do some self-berating and some, you know, looking into your soul or your history and then listen and feel like you've done your job. You know, maybe that is the first 10% of, of the job, but I, I'm deeply uncomfortable by the premature ending of a lot of conversations that I'm, that mm. I'm in. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been so great. And thank you for using your platform in the way that you have. I, I hope more people will take a cue from you. And do, do you think that what you're doing is penetrating in these 50 conversations that you've had? I feel like the job we did best in this response was providing ammunition for people who think the way we do, but didn't have the examples and the explanations. I think that what we've been successful in doing is having a conversation about the curricular element of this, which I feel is a far easier conversation than the cultural or the core elements that the curriculum has for too long been a product of. Well, a huge thanks again yeah. to our guest, Brian Platzer. And please thank Abby for us as well. Be sure to check out Brian's weekly column in The Atlantic and visit his website, brianplatzer.com, to learn more about his education consultancy. Thank you so much. It really was a treat to have this conversation. There's an honesty and a sophistication to the way you led this conversation that is refreshing and needed across this country right now. Oh, so much. I might have to quote you on that one. <laughs> Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of Erased. Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. Learn more at erasedpodcast.com or on Instagram or Facebook at Erased Podcast. And subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. I'm your co-host, Colette Bowers-Zinn. And I'm Lisa Johnson. Please tune in in two weeks when we're going to be joined by Donna Oram, who's president of the National Association of Independent Schools. Thanks for downloading and listening. See you in two weeks.